In recent years, a phrase I've seen more and more often is queer joy. Organisations are set up to promote queer joy, club nights, cultural events, all that sort of thing. It's great to see, and I understand why it's needed. There's been a long and frustrating history of queer tragedies in the media. Gay characters who die at the end, lonely and celibate, rejected by society. Personally, I'm a melodramatic sort. Please hold your shocked gasps at that revelation. So I'm drawn to that sort of gay weepy regardless of the broader complications therein. But I still love to see all these expressions of queer joy and happiness circulating around. As much as I love drama, I also love love. This story, though, isn't about queer joy. This is a story about the immense occult power of queer misery. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. I have a friend who was unhoused for a bit. Her name is Lily, and she had a troubled couple of years after coming out to her parents and being kicked out of their house. She dabbled with drugs of the self-destructive variety and fell in with a deeply unglamorous crowd. She once told me that the most sobering part of her time in the hole was realising that no matter what you took, you were still in Swindon when you woke up. In one of her stints trying to find her feet, she wound up staying at a Salvation Army shelter in London. This would have been in the late 90s to early 2000s, when many of these shelters still openly excluded queer people. Although the organisation has now quietly erased these policies and, in some cases, denied they ever existed, a now-deleted position statement from their website was archived by the New York Times in 2011. Quoting directly, Scripture forbids sexual intimacy between members of the same sex. Salvation Army believes, therefore, that Christians whose sexual orientation is primarily or exclusively same-sex are called upon to embrace celibacy as a way of life. Not exactly enlightened stuff. Although Lily is definitively a trans woman now, this was the late 90s, and that meant something slightly different then. Not hugely different, I don't want to cause generational discourse, but it was a fluid time, and she was experimenting with a lot of different identities and ways of expressing herself, as a lot of people do early on in their transition. Ironically, she's now largely settled on being a woman who's attracted to men, despite her best efforts to resist heterosexuality, but while staying at the Salvation Army, she knew there wasn't much point quibbling about the intricacies of her identity with the people holding the keys. They perceived her as a man, and a worryingly flamboyant one at that, so she had to go into stealth mode, strategically re-entering the closet for a while, or she'd be back on the streets. When inside the shelter, she had to use her dead name and share a room with a guy who snored and stole her socks. It was hell, and she was profoundly unhappy. She spent a lot of time wandering the city, gravitating towards hookup spots and discreet bars in Soho, learning about anonymity and shame. There are plenty of people for whom cruising is a unique erotic rush, something joyful, but that's not how it was for Lily. 
She knew on some level she wasn't a gay man, for one. And for two, she could sense that she was still on the same self-destructive kick that got her there in the first place. For some, great. For her, deeply unhealthy. Although at least an outlet, a gasp of oxygen in a world that was choking her out. It was at one of these spots, through a whispered, breathy conversation with a kindred soul in the bathroom, that she learned about the Skeleton Army. A little history first, then, about the Salvation Army's roots. They were, first and foremost, a Christian religious organisation, founded in 1865 by one-time Methodist preacher William Booth and his wife Catherine as the East London Christian Mission. Booth wanted the organisation to run more like a military than a conventional church, and in 1878, he restructured it along military lines, taking on the title of General and assigning his ministers rank as officers. They were part of a tradition of evangelical Christianity that stressed the importance of being born again through Jesus, and their early converts were generally taken from those rejected by mainstream society. Alcoholics, gamblers, morphine addicts, and sex workers were all welcomed with open arms, on condition that they reject their former sinful selves and practice strict temperance within the church. This total prohibition on drink and drugs even stretched as far as communion wine. Salvationists reject the sacrament of Holy Communion for reasons bigger than just its alcoholic content, but no doubt that's part of the mix. They would often recruit outside pubs looking for lost souls in search of a purpose, and they made themselves spectacularly unpopular with pub owners as a result. Nothing harsh is a good evening quite like street preachers and talk of eternal damnation. The Salvation Army has evolved over the years, and nowadays most people think of it as more of a charitable organisation than a church. But this strain of religious prohibitionism has hung on throughout. The same Christian conservatism that rallied against the immorality of alcohol is of a piece with what kept Lily from living her truth in her most desperate time. And it's a persistent, harmful stain on the organisation that will, for me, always call into question any good deeds they might do. Their motto, proudly declared on the crest of the Salvationists, is blood and fire, a battle cry against the deviant. If that includes my friends, I'm standing on the side of deviants. So, then, that's the Salvation Army. What of the Skeleton Army? It wasn't just pub owners who disliked the Salvationists. There arose a resistance movement to their marches, to their abstinence, to their incessant goddamn preaching. This group was known as the Skeleton Army. The exact history of the Skeleton Army is disputed, so I'll start with the official account, recorded by establishment newspapers and the Salvationists themselves. As you might imagine, the Skeletonists weren't much ones for writing things down, so we have to go with the clean, sober, and annoyingly literate side of the story first. According to official histories, a loose group known as the Skeleton Army formed in Exeter in 1881, made up of various ne'er-do-wells and their embittered publican benefactors. Their primary mission was to cause drunken anarchy in the pejorative sense of the word, 
wherever the God-fearing and righteous Salvationists attempted to spread their holy gospel. They would follow behind temperance marches, holding banners with the skull and crossed bones on them, loudly singing parody versions of hymns and drinking hard liquor. A loose network of skeleton armies sprung up all over England, mirroring the spread of the Salvation Army, and violent clashes between the two groups were common. The righteous were pelted with rocks and dead rats, and several Salvationists were seriously injured or even killed during riots started by the Skeleton Army. Quoting the Bethnal Green Eastern Post in November of 1882, A genuine rabble of roughs, pure and unadulterated, has been infesting the district for several weeks past. These vagabonds style themselves as the Skeleton Army. One told me that the object of the Skeleton Army was to put down the Salvationists by following them about everywhere, by beating a drum and burlesquing their songs, to render the conduct of their processions and services impossible. Amongst the skeleton rabble, there is a large percentage of the most consummate loafers and unmitigated blackguards London could produce, worthy of the disreputable class of publicans who hate the London School Board, education and temperance, and who, seeing the beginning of the end of their immoral traffic, prepared for the most desperate enterprise. Pretty sturdy stuff. That's not the only version of the truth, though. The folk history of the Skeleton Army paints a much more nuanced picture. Told in pamphlets, poems, and passed down snippets of oral history, the East London Skeleton Army's formation and activism can't be dismissed as merely the reactionary violence of drunken layabouts. More than just a rabble, the Skeletonists rallied behind a loose set of beliefs and ideas about the structure of society that draws a little from the burgeoning anarchism of the 19th century East End, not used in the pejorative sense in this case, and a little from the secretive, whispered about but lively occult scene in Victorian London. Many of the founding Skeletonists were connected to Rosicrucianism, a 17th century Christian esoteric movement which treated the Bible as a sort of mythical codex from which profound ancient truths could be defined. Rosicrucianism, sometimes known as the Order of the Rosy Cross, has connections in some places to Freemasonry and other shadowy organisations, but the occultist edge means it also lends itself to folk groups and minor sects that lean more pagan than traditionally Christian. By the late 1800s, this strain of Christian-derived magical thinking was blooming in the pavement cracks of post-Enlightenment industrial England. Famously, there was a Rosicrucian church in the waiting room at Denmark Hill Station, a great example of how it thrived in the wings of polite society. It was all folk religion, numerology, studying the Bible for clues and foretellings, literary theory turned ghost hunt turned supernatural journey turned black magic anarchy in the bustling edges of the city. The skeletonists who adhered to this belief structure, if you can even call something so loose and interpretive a structure, came from the outcast fringe, the unreformably queer, too outrageous for the salvationists to convert, unrepentant but paranormally stubborn in their search for truths that would shock the mainstream out of its stupor. Anecdotally, I'd say there's an attraction to this type of occultism which remains in queer circles to this day. 
Many of my dearest friends are into UFOs and psychics and tarot and candle magic, myself included. It makes sense to believe in chaos magic and disorder when you're living in a world which tells you that a fundamental part of your identity is inherently chaotic and disordered. When your experiences don't adhere to a strict cause and effect with regards to questions of the self. When being true to your heart means rejection from some preordained harmony, at least according to the gatekeepers of the so-called divine. You look elsewhere, beyond, for hidden knowledge and obscure artifacts of missing homes and whirlwind signifiers, which sweep through you and mortify in their wake a new place of safety, among the outcasts and the freaks, misshapen and ecstatic. Rationalism withers in the face of such things. The Skeleton Army weren't universally Rosicrucians. They weren't universally anything. That was the whole point. There existed, though, within certain edges and inflections of the movement, a particular type of occult practice which cuts through simple Christianity. A set of performative rites designed to reshape the world. I mentioned performative rites there, so what's performativity? Judith Butler first started using the term performativity in 1990s gender trouble. In the exact inverse of how it's often used in popular culture, performativity refers to speech acts that have material consequences. The simplest example, to help explain what that means in practice, is a judge sentencing you to 10 years in prison. When the judge says those words, I hereby sentence you to 10 years, there's no alchemical reaction, no grand reshaping of the conditions of the universe, and yet, nonetheless, you're probably about to spend 10 years in prison. That is a performative speech act, something said or performed which exerts authoritative power over your reality in a way which you can't just deny or shrug off. Key to performativity is repetition. Religious marriage vows and baptisms are rituals that materially alter the social dynamics of all involved, and they gain a part of their power through shared understanding of their meaning. We know what it connotes to say, I do, in front of an altar, and the social structures of the world reinforce that every day. Performative acts are, to put it in extremely glib and reductive terms, words that shape the world. Judith Butler is the most well-known writer on the concept because she took that pre-existing but unnamed idea from the linguist J.L. Austin, named it, and applied it to gender. To break that down a little, these are really complex ideas, so I apologise if I can't make them stick. Butler argued that when a doctor holds up a child and declares, it's a boy or it's a girl, that's not an observation. It's a performative declaration, a set of words that make something true. We're not born gendered. We are gendered when we are born. The differences between any two bodies are so numerous that we could create a social order based on almost any of them. The physical parts of ourselves that we inscribe with gender are just part of a massive catalogue of innate differences. It just so happens, though, that we perform gender into being daily by latching onto these arbitrary physical differences, mannerisms, modes of speech and dress, 
and repeating them constantly, inscribing and reinscribing gender into our lives. I need to stress that something being performative does not mean it is fake, false, or designed to mask a deeper truth. Performative speech acts structure our world in ways that we can't avoid. Like the judge saying, I sentence you to 10 years in jail, the doctor saying, it's a boy, is not something you can just shrug off. Gender, then, is something that is arbitrary, but not optional. You can't simply opt out of gender, wave a lofty no thank you when offered it. It's encoded into every encounter, every interaction, carrying with it the pressing weight of power and expectation. What you can do, however, is resist it, subvert it, confound it, disappoint or parody it, find ways to reverse the polarity on these signifiers in order to challenge those who would inflict their petty patriarchies onto you. Folk magic is, in many ways, the ultimate attempt to turn the logic of performativity back on itself. If these performative words are binding, why can't I bind with my performative words? If there is power in speech, how can my speech beget power? The skeletonists were operating, of course, almost a hundred years before anyone thought of the word performativity in this context. But they understood the power of ritual, not to mention the power of burlesque, of parody, and of resistance. The skeleton army disappears from the history books around the turn of the century, but as any good occultist will tell you, Merely disappearing does not imply ceasing to exist. In the changing climate of the early 1900s, with the Salvationists ascendant and increasingly supported by the establishment as a charitable organisation, they knew they had to disappear for a while. Things had gotten too hot. And so, in 1903, the occult corps of the Skeleton Army met in a bar near Embankment. Probably Gordon's Wine Bar, if you know it, but hard to be sure since it wasn't quite so notable back then, and began a ritual. By this time, their resistance wasn't just to the Salvation Army. Its roots ran deeper than that. They were seeking a new plane of existence, a code that would allow them to rewrite the world, to force it to accept them as they were, Remember, these are the unreformable, the visibly queer, the hegemonic refuseniks who didn't want to fit in. They were creating a cipher to carve a space in expectation, rather than allowing themselves to be sanded smooth. They were looking for the magic words to save their lives. And to hear the oral history of the skeleton army, passed down in pub toilets and isolated car parks and at Highgate Men's Pond, between breathy gasps and the snatched erotics of a knowing moment. They found them. This is what Lily was told in that Soho bathroom in 2003, 
Almost a hundred years to the day since all that was solid in the Skelton army melted into air. A queer language game was built. A Polari resistance engine that lives in the silence between words and the dark. Imbued with the spirit of the miserable and the downtrodden, like a curse bottle full of piss and nails. These words hold within them a performative power that frees those who embrace their truth. And Lily embraced it. When Lily got back to the Salvation Army shelter that evening, she found something strange had happened. She had been assigned to her own room, and all her stuff had been moved over into it, away from the men's side of the building. The staff started calling her Lily unprompted, sometimes looking slightly puzzled as they did it, but unable to stop themselves. And she realised that nobody commented on what she was wearing or her mannerisms anymore. It wasn't perfect, the place was still a gauntlet of conservative Christianity, but something had changed. From her lowest ebb, freedom. She used the momentum of those words to get herself out of there, sooner rather than later, and she's been on a rough upward trajectory to this day. Don't get me wrong, it hasn't been frictionless, and she's had some bumps along the way, but Lily's been a committed skeletonist ever since, following along behind the puritanical parade of mainstream society, flag in one hand and cobblestone in the other, a loosely constructed vehicle of resistance and misery, dragging power out of herself to carve ritual respect into the pavement, where the polite and malignant fear to tread. I can't tell you the magic words. I'm sorry, I don't know them. But if you ever find yourself isolated from the world, downtrodden and outcast, be abject and take heart regardless. You are not alone. episode of Subterraneans, Phantom Platforms and Memory Loss on the Tube. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe on Patreon where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes and behind the scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran, Alex, and Andrew. After being with a piece punk in black, we're definite that you're never turning back. 
Thanks for listening.